Hello and welcome to Lecture 10A of MGI 515 IT Service Quality Management. We're in the final stages of reviewing the ISO IEC 20000 standard. And this conversation will be about Section 9, which is on performance evaluation. Now, elsewhere in the standard, it's already told us a lot about what we need to achieve. It's told us that we had to set performance criteria. It's told us a lot about the kind of information that we needed to record and keep, including about the performance to meet those criteria. This section is telling us what we need to look at and monitor in order to ensure that we can and do meet those criteria. As we've come to expect, the standard does give us broad sweeping statements about what we need to monitor. But interestingly, it separates the process of decision-making around what it is we're going to monitor from the actual monitoring and reporting itself. So instead of saying, well, we should just monitor whatever is required, it actually separates the process of making the decision. And this is because the decision-making regarding what it is that needs to be monitored needs to be an inclusive, separate process. If we just bundle it together with the process of actually monitoring, then it allows for assumptions as to what is appropriate monitoring. By separating the decision-making in point 9.1, and elsewhere the standard has done a similar thing, it's telling us that we need to go about the process of making these clear decisions in a particular way. So we need to decide what needs to be monitored and measured. We need to decide how that is going to be done. What are the methods? How are things going to be analysed and evaluated? When things need to be monitored and measured? And what and when are we going to do something about the results from those measurements? And that last point ties into the at-planned intervals statement that we've heard elsewhere throughout the standard. So when making these decisions, we need to have all of the appropriate stakeholders involved. We need to make sure that we've got all of this information ironed out. The decisions are clear and then recorded. Because the standard specifically tells us we need to make sure that all of this information is locked in so that everyone else can know exactly what's expected of them. Then we get the broad sweeping statement that says that we will evaluate the performance against the management objectives and shall evaluate the effectiveness of the services against the service requirements. And that's the bottom line that says, well, we're going to use all of this reporting to check and make sure that it's all okay. But it's not enough to simply have some reporting, have some feedback from that reporting, and then do something about it. In 9.2, the standard is telling us that we need to deliberately audit ourselves internally everything that's going on within the SMS. And in two different ways, we need to audit how the services are delivered and whether or not they achieve the requirements that we have for the SMS. And secondly, and perhaps separately, we need to know whether or not it's adhering to all of the requirements of the ISO standard. So it's telling us we need to have an audit program because it's told us it has to be at planned intervals. It then goes further to say that everyone needs to know the importance of each of these processes. We need to take into account how important each process is. So some might be audited more often than others and some might be audited more often if they change or the organisation changes and needs something different. And of course, we're going to be looking at previous audits and what that has told us and allow that to influence what we might need to look at next. So each audit needs to have its scope decided by taking into account those factors. Individual orders need to be selected and chosen, obviously for their impartiality and to protect the impartiality of the process overall. 
to make sure that they are suitably reported to relevant management people and that we keep and record all of the information that it collects and uses. So why do we do all that? Well, because of 9.3, which is about management review. Here, top management is once again drawn back into the mix and is told that they need to proactively, at planned intervals, make sure that the SMS is doing what it needs to do. Now, interestingly, it's not simply saying that top management needs to look at the reports. It's a deeper obligation than that. It's top management shall review the SMS and the services to make sure that they're okay. The audits and the performance evaluation is simply a tool, a mechanism to do that. The obligation is to get to the bottom of what's going on. So this gives top management a sense of obligation over ensuring that whatever audit programs are in place are adequate and effective in order for them to make their decisions about whether or not the SMS is doing its job. Once again, it's another example of how the standard prevents us from having any excuses. Top management simply can't point a finger at the audit process and say, well, I couldn't do my job because the audit wasn't good enough. According to the standard, that's not good enough from top management. And the sort of things that top management are expected to review are the kinds of things you might expect. Looking at previous management reviews, things that might have been expected or requested to be worked on, how did that work out? A retrospective of whether or not previous reviews have achieved their goals might look at changes to what has affected the SMS or what has happened within the SMS, changes to what is expected from the SMS, the overall performance and effectiveness, including in particular trends in whether or not problems are getting worse, results, monitoring and evaluation is showing negative trends or positive trends, and opportunities for improvement that might come out from that information that tells us where we could do better. But it's not just the internal perspective that the standard expects of us. We also need to get feedback from customers or any other interested parties that has something to tell us about how well it's performing. That means we need to make sure we're adhering to certain policies, contracts, external requirements, perhaps laws that we're obliged to follow. This might mean that we also need to evaluate the performance of other parties that we rely upon in the delivery of services, suppliers or other external entities that we need to monitor and maintain. Top management needs to review how those are performing as well. Then there's the resource perspective. Top management needs to understand how the current and future resources are expected to deliver and be what's required for the SMS. That includes the people, the technology, the equipment, all of the information, the finances, the skills and understanding, the knowledge necessary, but also being aware of the risks knowing what new risks might now be applicable and making sure that they are being addressed as part of risks and opportunities within the SMS. And lastly, really, any other changes, anything new. The top management review is the opportunity for management to have their say and make sure that the SMS is still comfortably and completely on top of all of its requirements. Now, the last point here is 9.4, which talks about service reporting. Now, service reporting is where a lot of the technical personnel within an IT department will be more familiar. They will be involved in the environment of monitoring things like the uptime, the availability, the performance levels, the capability of all of the services that they're looking at. So that's often from a more technical point of view, and that'll be familiar to a lot of people who do that kind of work. But 
What the standard requires of us here is fairly simplistic. It simply says that we will report on the performance and effectiveness of the SMS and all of its services. So we will do whatever reporting is needed. Here we have the broad sweeping statement that simply says we'll monitor everything. But it's not telling us in detail exactly what and how we need to monitor. What it's putting the obligation on is on top management to make sure that they have all of the information that they need in order to be totally in control of the performance and capability of the SMS so that the SMS is 100% doing its job. Now, that's going to filter down and mean that specific service reporting, including the technical reporting, is going to have certain requirements that feed up into the management requirements. So what the standard is doing is leveraging the obligations and accountability of top management and using that as the trigger and the filter point for them to decide exactly what needs to be monitored at a more technical level. This is the end of Lecture 10A. Hello and welcome to Lecture 10B of MGI 515 IT Service Quality Management. We are at the final stages of our review of the ISO IEC 20000 document, and we're going to talk about Section 10, which is about improvement. Now, arguably, this is one of the sections that really separates an ISO-level organisation from one that's simply doing a great job, perhaps just working with things like ITIL. A large part of the certainty that an ISO-accredited organisation is meant to give is about an assurance that when something goes wrong, they will do certain things about it. We all know that things don't work out quite the way they should every time with IT. And the ISO understands that, and our customers understand that. But what the ISO is trying to do is say that, well, when the inevitable happens, certain things will absolutely guaranteed take place in an ISO organisation. And in 10.1, it talks about non-conformity. Now, it's worth jumping back to the terms and definitions here to understand exactly what the standard means by non-conformity. So if we go back to 3.1.12, it tells us that a non-conformity is an event which does not conform either to the requirements of this document, being the standard, or the requirements of the SMS itself. So a non-conformity could be where the SMS has failed to deliver on its promises, or it could be where the SMS or the organisation supporting it has failed to meet the obligations of the ISO standard. Either are considered a non-conformity under Clause 10. And the first thing we're expected to do about it is respond to it. So we're obviously expected to take action to control it and fix it immediately to whatever extent we can, and to deal with the consequences. So it's telling us that fixing it isn't enough. We need to face the repercussions and deal with those as well. But then we need to make sure that we understand what has caused this. We need to review what this non-conformity has come from, why it has happened, and then try to understand if it's likely to happen somewhere else or some other time. So by looking at the causes, we look at not only this particular non-conformity, but when we find the cause, that might trigger a non-conformity somewhere else. It might be the kind of problem that could be more far-reaching. What we're seeing as an immediate non-conformity might only be a symptom. So we're obliged to look for any other 
potential non-conformity that might also manifest out of whatever has caused this one and look to see if any non-conformities might have already been caused by this that have not yet come to our attention. So this is about thoroughness. This is about making sure that every connected element of this non-conformity that we've detected has been thoroughly investigated. Then obviously we need to do something about it and we need to review the effectiveness of whatever we've done about it. And if that means that we need to make systemic changes, fundamental changes, policy process changes, resource changes, any changes to the SMS, then we make those. But there's a little trap here. It tells us that these corrective actions that we have to take, they need to be appropriate to the effects of the nonconformities encountered. And that works two ways. It's saying that not only do we have to carefully decide exactly what is the appropriate response and make sure that we do what's required, but we also don't need to do other things. This isn't an excuse to make other inappropriate changes that aren't related to the nonconformity. There are other more suitable processes for making other changes that aren't corrective action. Corrective action is not a way to make other kinds of changes to our SMS. And naturally, like most other things we need to do under the standard, we need to record what we did and whatever results or outcomes that it generated. But that is all about being reactive to a non-conformity that's being detected. 10.2 is telling us that we need to also be proactively pursuing possibilities or opportunities for continual improvement. It's not just about fixing things when it goes wrong. It's about finding ways to constantly do what we do and do it better. So we're expected to have evaluation criteria that looks for opportunities for improvement. And we have a process for approving those, for evaluating not only the criteria that we're aiming for, but evaluating the improvement, whether or not that brings us closer to enhancing our management objectives, the strategy behind the SMS. And we need to find these opportunities, document them, and then approve certain activities that might lead to improving those outcomes. We might have certain goals or targets for improvement, things that we already know could possibly be done better. We use targets to motivate for innovation, for enhancements in efficiency, for changes that might lead to better results. We might prioritize those. We can't necessarily do everything that might be resulting in something better. We might need to decide what we do now and what we do later. This might, in fact, will almost certainly require changes to something in the SMS. So we need to manage those changes and make sure that we are checking to see whether or not anything that we've changed, because we're expecting it to yield better results, we check and make sure that it is yielding the results that we wanted. So we report on the improvements that we think we've implemented and double check to make sure that it's actually an improvement in particular in the areas that we were wanting it to be. And then, in case we weren't completely sure, the standard finishes off with a little note that says that these improvements can be reactive or proactive actions. Any form of correction or corrective action can be an improvement, as well as enhancements, innovation, or even restructuring and reorganisation might end up being an improvement. This brings us to the end of Lecture 10b, and it's a conclusion to our discussion on the clauses of the ISO-IEC 20000 standard. Hello and welcome to Lecture 10C. 
of MGI 515 IT Service Quality Management. My name is Brenton Birchmore, and now that we've been through a great deal of ITIL 4 and the ISO IEC 20000 standard, we're going to try and draw some connections between the two and look for the more useful alignments and how the two work together to achieve our outcomes. Now, we know already that much of what we find within ITIL is going to be about the value of what happens within the day-to-day -day operations of IT services, the daily grind. ITIL is going to help us at all levels of IT service operation, from the lowest levels of technical operation and activity up to senior management and decision-making. In fact, ITIL is a system that quite deliberately links these together all the way from one end to the other. This is especially true in ITIL 4 because here we now see a new emphasis on the strategic perspective, on principles and concepts of things like value. ITIL 4 brings top management more into the picture and helps make ITIL more of a complete system for the IT organisation. ITIL 4 has more about the decisions and the awareness that top management needs to have for successful IT service management. But as we've seen, ITIL focuses on the IT service management without taking a big interest in the quality of that IT service management. It's kind of assumed or it's left up to the organisation to have a qualitative assessment. ITIL is about the services and their management and the processes and the activities and the decisions necessary. But it's not really helping us do it at any particular standard. This is where we should look at the role of the ISO 20K standard, where it is entirely focused on the quality of IT service management. Now, much of the wording within the standard echoes the wording that we find in ITIL. And although the ISO doesn't do things like specify the use of ITIL, at least a knowledge of ITIL and its terms is assumed within the standard. Now, one of the simplest alignment descriptions about the ISO standard is we can think of ISO as being a list of all of the things that must happen and must exist. But they are all there because it includes all those things that we often hate doing or that most organisations will struggle to do. The things that might sound like they go above and beyond, and so a lot of organisations fall short. And a lot of those things are specifically included in the ISO standard for that very reason, because they're often falling off the wagon. Now, because the ISO standard is about absolutes, it's about no exceptions and no excuses. It goes to great lengths to force those points to be part of the expectations. So the ISO standard is about the avoidance of, the minimization of, and the prompt correction of anything that undermines our ability to keep our IT service quality promises. If we say we're going to do something, the ISO tells us how we make sure we absolutely do. ITIL is about how we need to think about those details, how we need to decide and execute IT service management 
in order to be aligned and holistic throughout the organisation. So whilst the ISO standard simply says that everyone needs to be on the same page, ITIL gives us the language and the decisions and the topics, the content, the things that we need to actually think about from all the different areas that make up a service management system to help us find this alignment. So ISO shows us what IT service quality excellence looks like and shows us what it contains, whilst ITIL shows us what IT service execution should look like and contain. So this means that ITIL serves underneath the ISO standard as a way to execute on the promises that we make, a method of perhaps how we might go about that. But we know that it's not detailed when it comes to telling us how to do it. It doesn't answer all of the how questions, but it gives us a framework to find those answers. It shows us what the different pieces of the puzzle look like. It shows us where they fit in together. So it shows us where the different components of the IT service organization fit together. Its role, therefore, is much more about the alignment of these components that are necessary to deliver a complete IT service. No organization can achieve the ISO standard without an alignment of its IT service management operations. And ITIL is that alignment or a blueprint for that alignment. It gives us a single understanding from the very top where it addresses concepts like value, co-creation, the organization itself, the services, the relationships. This helps top management to understand in detail what their ISO obligations are actually going to look like and what they might include. ITIL gives middle management guidance on decisions like the organizational structure, its people and other resources, parties like suppliers and partners, and the role of process. It does that via the four dimensions. And it defines it in something that it calls the service value system, which also happens to talk about governance, which is the connection to the ISO standard. And it includes a detailed and practical service value chain, which is a practical blueprint for the service management system that the ISO tells us about. ITIL then links general management into service management by showing the direct connections to 14 general management practices that otherwise might have little or nothing to do with IT service management. But these connections are vital for any organisation to meet ISO obligations because they need to meet them to and with interested parties. Those interested parties that all function in and with and are all those other general management practices. So ITIL shows us the way in which these other interested parties interact and intersect with things like the service value chain. It then lays out many service and technical practices that are the daily bread of the service management system. 
and it shows us how they look in relation to the service value chain, which is the daily operations. And these help us to ensure that no matter what part of the SMS from the standard that we might be looking at or worried about, they can all have the same alignment and the same understanding and be working cohesively together, which is essential for the effective running of a ruthless ISO standard. In the end, perhaps the main benefit of the ITIL framework is not that it helps us with specific details or specific clauses of the ISO standard, is more that it helps us with the underlying mantra of no exceptions and no excuses. If anything is likely to fail the ISO test, it will be one of those two things. IT is used to them. IT lives and breathes exceptions and excuses. But under the ISO standard, we must not only abandon them, we must annihilate them. And that is perhaps the true potential of ITIL. To find a way or to find an answer to every excuse and every exception that might come up. So together, we not only have a standard to live up to, we have a way to actually reach it reliably across the entire IT organization. This is the end of Lecture 10C.